Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today not worthy of, of your presence or of so much, but yet you are good and you are merciful. And for these reasons, we can come and take what you have prepared for us to receive. God, I ask that you would prepare our hearts, that we could feast on this content, because, Lord, it, it comes from you. I've done my best to, to bring what is fitting to follow up with last week, God, but only you can make it real and applicable in our lives to where it truly changes us. I ask that this day we would not only leave edified, but we would leave stronger and excited about the victory that is already ours in Christ and more confident in our ability to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is week two of folly, of wisdom and folly. And I'm going to do a quick review of last week, and then we're going to dive in. So we saw last week that there are, uh, in, in the beginning of Proverbs, that folly and wisdom is personified in, in two different ways, and that was Madam Folly, and, uh, and, and then wisdom was also a woman, and, and that's how the, uh, it, was, it, was, it was personified in the text. And so folly referred to all the ways of committing sin, and nothing good comes from her, and then wisdom, all the ways of committing righteousness, but nothing compares to her. Her value is infinite. Fools can seek, and the wise can be fooled. And what we saw in this is that ultimately there is a choice. So we can choose wisdom, or we can choose folly. Solomon, we saw in the end, despite all the wisdom that he had and all the reasons to believe otherwise, chose folly. His folly, in fact, was the linchpin in the avalanche of everything that happened to Israel in the Old Testament leading up to the victory in Christ. If folly can outsmart Solomon, it can outsmart us as well. We, too, can look to the created order to satisfy. Solomon ultimately missed that the point of wisdom is to store it in our hearts that we might not sin against God and succumb to folly. And this is important because sin is personal and it is offensive to the Lord. Ultimately, what Solomon missed above all else is he missed the Lord. We saw as he went after um, the other wives that, that, that those wives led him astray to worship other gods. And it is one of the most sobering and scary texts, I believe, in the Old Testament to hear of such a great man fall. And so there's so much for us to learn from this example. Today we're going to turn more to the New Testament because the New Testament... Uh, expounds upon the Old Testament, and we're going to look at folly from the New Testament so that we can find our victory there. Today, specifically, we're going to gain wisdom and how folly lures us. We're going to see the New Testament's provision to protect us from folly and to guard our heart so that we don't miss God like Solomon did. So last week, we saw what Madam Folly does, but today, I want to start with how she does it. So, first of all, folly is a process. No one sets out to be a fool. Katie said that um, on Wednesday night, and I, that just really struck me because I thought, you know, it's so true. I mean, anyone who was led down that path, 
And they didn't set out and say, I'm going to you know, mess up my marriage, or I'm going to destroy my family, or I'm going to destroy my life. They end up there, and they're like, what just happened? And in that, we see folly's deception, that it is, that is, a, that it is a path, and it, it leads toward darkness. So Satan hits at the saint, uh, or every saint, at our point of weakness. Solomon, he hit at his pride. David's point of compromise was because he already compromised with women, then it just continued uh, as he aged. Uh, Eve, it was her lack of trust in the Lord and what he had provided. Um, and Madam Folly most often walks through a door that is left open, somewhere where our hearts aren't guarded is, is something we saw. So when wisdom is rejected, the mind becomes defenseless and then vulnerable to temptation. Compromise happens slowly as we place value on things other than the Lord. So with folly, we may not realize that we're walking in the way of folly, but we've made little compromises here and there, and all of a sudden we're like, where's the Lord? Um, and we have, to, we have to backtrack our steps. But something with, with sin and folly is that it's progressive, and it generally starts out pretty easy to do, and then it just gets tougher. Uh, but it gives its immediate pleasure, and then it cultivates an appetite for more. Someone recently said to me, as I was going over this content, um, I, I, I'm, they said, I I'm still feel bound by folly in this area. I said, well, how many times have you said no to it? Because the further, more we say yes to it, the more it does set its trap. So in the beginning, it's easy to do, but in the end, it's really hard to let go of. So resistance becomes less until the behavior becomes habitual. And then we see that sin is said to be deceitful because it misleads its victims. People usually find out, like, like how, 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 how did I get here? And they have to look back at the, at the progression, and all of a sudden, they're like, man, I missed it. I started walking down that way, but I didn't realize that I was on this path. So it's, it's, it's sometimes a mystery to them. The sinner then suffers increasingly severe consequences, but in the end, it's a pit that they fall into. They don't seek the Lord because they think in and of themselves that their goodness is enough to stand before God at judgment, and the Lord's going to be good. Good job. And that pride is ultimately what keeps them from the Lord. In Romans, Paul talks about how they fail to give God glory, and ultimately, Every single person that doesn't turn to the Lord, that will be the Lord's judgment on them. They failed to give God glory for his provision. Even if they never heard the gospel, Gentiles are accountable for the revealed knowledge of the Lord. And so, so ultimately, to turn to the Lord, we have to turn from, from our way and on our self-righteousness and turn toward his, because obviously we can't, we know we can't, it's not a self-righteousness that we have, but we get from him. And so sin and folly doesn't have to be these outrageous sins. It could be someone's life that looks great, but in their heart they are far from the Lord because they don't acknowledge him as Lord. So when Jesus came, he expounded on the law further, and he dealt with these things, and he basically said that all folly is in the heart. And so he expounds on what the Old Testament says about folly. In the New Testament, a few more points about folly. Number one, folly or sin breaks fellowship. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing truth. Number two, folly enslaves. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Number three, Jesus explains that folly is actual, it is natural for the fallen man. So what do I mean by this? Well, if Adam and Eve, who had the garden, who had every single thing going for them, 
And they had, they were able to walk with the Lord there. And then Solomon has everything that he has on the horizontal. And he actually hears from the Lord, seeing the Shekinah glory of the Lord, seeing the Lord perform his promises. We need to know that something more is needed than every provision of the Lord on the horizontal level. In other words, a relationship with him is vertical. For the natural man, we will naturally go after the horizontal unless something different happens. This problem that Adam and Eve and Solomon had was the same with Israel in the Old Testament. Israel in the Old Testament needed new hearts. Their hearts were flesh. They went after empty cisterns. This was God's his verdict against them. They looked to the horizontal to satisfy, and the Lord was displeased with them because he said, I am the, I'm the one who gives you living waters, but they turned from him, and they, and they looked at the horizontal. This is the state of natural man. It will always look to the horizontal to satisfy, but it remains our temptation as believers as well. The Bible teaches that if we were to experience the fullness of the Lord and the pleasures and the blessings of his perfect creation— then we too, apart from an act of the Lord, would choose folly as well. That's Romans 3.10, because our hearts, being an Adam, are bad. But the point that I want to focus on the most is this, that nothing in the line of Adam, so nothing in natural man, can ultimately overcome folly, because flesh can't fight flesh. We are doomed if we rely on the flesh or anything in us to overcome folly. So if we read Proverbs and we read Wisdom and Folly and we go out and say, I'm going to do the best I can now that I know this wisdom, and we try to do that apart from the Lord, we are going to fail because apart from him, there's no wisdom to be had. This is the case of Romans 7. And I love being able to teach in this passage because for the longest time I had, I read this passage as I think a lot of people do. And they read it and they go, that's how I feel. Paul must be saying that it's okay for me to live in my flesh, all right? I've seen Christians read these verses and go, this, is, this defines my life. See, I'm a Christian because I'm struggling with this. And I'm going to argue, and what I understand the text to say after much study, is that Paul, when I read this, is not talking about himself and his experience as a believing Christian, but as a Jew who knows the law and whose flesh is trying out of his own efforts to live in victory, okay? And this is very important from where we're going to go the rest of this, the rest of this time. Romans 7, 14 through 24. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not know, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see his struggle, and we can identify with this, okay? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see that in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. We can identify with this because when we read Proverbs, when we read the laws of God, when we read the words of Christ, we too, when we're relying on our own strength, can identify that this law works against us, we can't possibly obey the Lord apart from his spirit. And that is what Paul is trying to teach here. Romans 7 in these verses is a description of the natural fallen struggle with the knowledge of the Lord's will. He was speaking to Jews when he was teaching this, and they would have been going, yes, yes, I understand that. They understand because they wanted to obey God, but they did not have the power to do it. For the Christian, our struggle is anywhere that we know the will of God, but are trusting in our flesh to overcome. So Paul understood Romans 7, but Paul did not live there. As we see at the end of chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I just read all of Acts in the past five days, and I saw Paul's life. He did not live a defeated life. He lived a life in victory because he knew what it was like to live by the power of the Spirit. So while his flesh is always there and our flesh is always there, we will always have the temptation to live in Romans 7. What I want you to recognize is if you see yourself struggling with that person, that the Spirit is right there able to help you overcome. He is always able, and that is the goal for today, okay, because of this. So where Israel lived in the flesh, this is Old Testament Israel, lived by the flesh according to the law and walked in the way of foolishness. The true Israel, who is Christ, okay, lives by the Spirit and walks in the way of wisdom. Christ came to do away with folly, and he gave us the means by do it, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that is our text today and where we're going to spend the rest of this time. That is Romans 8. And here's what happens. People read Romans 7, and then they stop right there. All right, But if we continue to verse 8, this is what Paul says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver me from this body of death. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And here's the key, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you live in Romans 7, if, you, if that is your state and you stay there without, a, without looking at, at the spirit in 8, you, you can't be pleasing God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And here's what I want you to see. In if Christ is wisdom personified, and we all agree that he is, and the spirit of Christ lives in us, which he does if we have repented of our sins, then wisdom for the Christian is not trying our best to, to obey rules, okay? But it is walking by the spirit of Christ and walking by the spirit and not by the flesh. So wisdom has just changed. It's not the man, the old man trying to do something, but it's the new man who's in Christ obeying by the power of spirit what God has commanded, by the power, the resurrected power that raised Christ from the dead. That is 
our inheritance, and that is how we walk. So wisdom just went from obeying a bunch of rules to God, help me not walk according to my flesh because there is nothing good in me. But thanks be to God that you have set me free and that I can live by the Spirit, and that is your provision for me in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So uh, in California, my husband and I tried really hard to find a bunch of good churches, and it was uh, somewhat of a struggle, and we thought we had found a good one, and uh, they got to this, this, uh, this verse where it says, for freedom, freedom uh, Galatians has set us free, stand firm then, and do not be submitted into the yoke of slavery, and this girl came up to me, and she said, Sarah, God has set you free. You are free to dance, and I was like, Okay, and, and I, that made me not want to dance because like, they were all dancing, and I was like, okay, I'm so confused. And so I just start, sat back, and I started paying attention. And, and I was confused because I read this text, and I understood it differently, but the Church of America at large does not truly believe, and, and, and I've, I've, we've been a part of a lot of churches, I, I think that this text, I, I don't know that they all believe that, that this text means that we're truly free from sin. Or at least that's not what they value, okay? That freedom to them means a whole bunch of different things. To this one church we were at, which we didn't stay at very long, it meant the freedom to dance, and it was like freedom in yourself, or freedom to love, or freedom to something. But the, the context here is that we are actually free from sin. That's a huge deal. So my husband and I came to Kentucky. We prayed for a church that believed that you were free from sin. That's all we wanted. And I think that if we took this one text and we went to every church in America that it would divide the churches. I mean, I could be wrong. This is just my opinion right here. But if we went to the churches and we said, what are you free from? I don't think a lot of them would say, we are free from sin. I don't think they think it's that big, because that, that's not what they want. But that is everything. Because if we want is the Lord, then we need nothing more than freedom from sin. My husband and I came, and we sat in the back. And the first week, Robert Koneman taught. And Robert Koneman stood right here, and he had just had his surgery done on his head, and he's, the, he's explaining how the doctor asked him what part of his brain he should remove. He said, I just don't want you to remove the part where I can preach. I want to be able to still study the word of the Lord. And then he went to talk about his freedom in Christ and free from being, from having to sin. And we were sold. We didn't even have to hear Brian. We sat back here, uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was kind of small. I met Heather, I think, later. But we were sold with, with Robert. We just wanted a church that taught this because there's no freedom to be found apart from Christ. But we need freedom from sin, ultimately. It is, it is that big of a deal. So this begs the question, how do we live by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Well, folly has to be replaced with something. You can't just remove folly. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to stop being foolish. Something has to be in its place. And we find this answer in Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. And then here it is. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members as, uh, to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, do you not know that if you yield yourselves 
to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That is us in Christ. We are slaves of righteousness, and we have the ability to do it because the power of Christ is stronger in us than the flesh, and that is the good news. So while we, we understand seven because we have our flesh and it wages war, the power of the Spirit is infinitely more powerful. So I don't know about you, but when I drive, I, 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 I'm like, I really have to focus on the signs, but yield signs pop up on me. I feel like they need a warning. There's going to be a yield sign, okay? If you can't tell, me time, tell you how many times I've been merging, and all of a sudden here's this yield, and it's, it's too late for me. I'm not looking that far in advance, okay? Um, particularly in Simpsonville. There was a yield sign the first time we moved. We, I got on the interstate at Simpsonville in a hurry, missed the yield sign, almost got in a wreck. And every time I get on that interstate, I'm, I'm freaked out and I'm reminding myself there's a yield sign, there's a yield sign. It is very important for us to remember that because of the power of the Spirit, that any time we are presented with the opportunity to walk in, in to either make a mistake or to sin, that we have the ability to yield. We have to remind ourselves there. It's a very conscientious yielding because of the victory in Christ. Yes, we can do it. It is huge. But part of that is knowing where the yield signs are. And so one of the things that I want to do is I want to focus on uh, one of the, one of the, the, the temptations that we have to sin and just realize that, number one, our sin ultimately, where we are tempted to walk in it, begins with some kind of felt need that we have. We know that James says in 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But something we need to remember is that desire often comes before temptation. It's not temptation by itself, but our heart's desire for something that actually leads us into sin. So it's not temptation that, that is the sin, but something in us that leads us to it. You can't be tempted to do something that you don't desire. I mean, think about it. If I told you, hey, I want to go swim in the Ohio River. I want to swim to the other side. And you might be like, well, in the summertime? No, right now. It will be so much fun. We're going to go dive in there. We're going to swim to the other side. You'll be able to make it. It's, the water's going to be so refreshing. You're going to be like, no, I don't want to do that. It's, it's going to be really easy for you to turn that down. You're not going to be tempted by that because you don't want to swim in the Ohio River probably no matter what. And you definitely don't do it in the wintertime. We can't be tempted by something we don't desire. It is our, it is our desires that lead us into sin. <coughs> Uh, so then temptation is not something that happens to us, but it is something that happens within us. Nothing external can cause us to sin. So the way to fight sin is not mainly by trying to resist temptation. Remember, there's no power in the flesh, okay? The most effective way to fight sin is actually by changing our desires. And how do we do this? Well, that's what Christ came to do. Desires are born when we lack something perceived or real. That's ultimately where they come from. So we can have godly desires. They're birthed in us. God gives them to us. Uh, we have the desire to be loved, fed, warm, uh, to have adventure, to have peace, to have happiness. These are good things. They're planted by the Lord. But then we can also have sinful desires. These are desires that come when we falsely perceive that we lack something. So um, when we seek the created order, all right, and not the Lord to satisfy. And this is how even good people fall. 
Some examples of this is that Esau didn't want to give up his birthright. Uh, he did so because what he wanted at that moment was stronger. He wanted to eat, and so he, he gave way to that temptation. It wasn't that he didn't want the birthright, because we see right after that, he's like, what have I just done? He, he hated himself for what he had done, and he, and he even hated his brother, but something at that moment, some desire was stronger that he gave way to. Abusers lack a sense of power or authority, and so they oppress another person, okay? So there's that perceived need that they have, and so they abuse, all right? Controlling people, they lack a sense of power. So what do they try to do? They try to control other people. Those who struggle with pornography, I heard this recently, they mostly come from an upbringing where they lack some kind of intimacy. And so that need for intimacy that, that God actually gave us wasn't filled as a child, and so there is something that they perceive fills that need instead of going to the Lord to fill that. That would be a, another stronghold, okay? Something I want you to pay attention to is that even good desires can become bad. Jeremy Pierre says, people tend to do two things with a genuine desire for a created good. First, they value it above what God says is of greater value. And second, they ward it into something, some personalized version of the genuine object, okay? So an example of this, uh, sometime into marriage, I've been married 17 years, uh, my husband and I were just fighting a ton, and, um, and we were like kind of just demanding of each other, and you know, he had these rights, and I had these rights, and I was certain that he was not loving me. Okay, I, I knew this, and so, and he was certain that I wasn't respecting him, and I was certain that I was, okay? So we're both mad and indignant that the other person had this perceived injustice that we, we didn't each feel and agree with, so we just bickered, and, and, and over time, it started to wear on us until uh, my husband finally agreed to go see a biblical counselor, you know, and so we go see this guy, and he says to us, after we explain our story, he goes, did you all read the Love and Respect yet? And we're like, huh, you know, the Love and Respect book by uh, Emerson. Or, anyway, we're like, oh, yeah, we read that. Is that all? And I'm thinking, is that all he can give us is to tell us that, you know, we read this book, I already read it. And, and he goes, uh, and we go, yeah, we read it. And he goes, yeah, I thought so. He goes, there's your problem. And we're like, huh, what do you mean? That we thought that was a good book. And he's like, well, he goes, what you did is that you took something that God meant and that is good and they have become demands for you. This is something that you perceived that you wanted, but all of a sudden became a need, and now you're demanding it from each other as if it's a right. And he said, I can't tell you how many people I counseled down from books like that that make you think that those things are rights. He said, no longer. He said, if you want a good marriage, you're, you don't, first of all, you aren't owed much from the other person. You go to have your needs met in the Lord, and you go ahead and ask, you explain to that person what respect means to you or what love means to you, but you need to be okay if you don't get it. And I'll tell you what, that was a low point in our marriage, but our marriage turned around since then. And I started going to the Lord. Anytime I started getting snippy in my husband because you're not loving me, you're not loving me, one thing was missing in my life, and that was intimacy on the vertical. And ever since then, because it's still something I want from my husband, if he stops giving me the love I perceive, I go to the Lord. And if he starts getting demanding of respect, that kind of thing, I, I see the same thing as missing in his life as well. And, and I might not react to, you know, how he's talking about respect because I should respect him and he should love me. But the problem is that desire then became a need and it morphed into sin because it was something we began to demand. And that is where it is dangerous. 
because we're looking on the horizontal to satisfy. See how tricky this is? It's so tricky. Um, so something else about desires is they go haywire. So these good desires go haywire if we don't have them girded with truth, which is why we're told in 2 Corinthians, for though we walk, uh, this is uh, chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, we have strongholds. Strongholds aren't just like, oh, it's folly. I could, they're, they're really hard, hard to change. It's like you've been going in one direction, having something on the horizontal satisfy that need, and all of a sudden you need to move the Titanic. It doesn't happen all at once. I once heard that we just changed in degrees, and that's kind of how a ship moves. It's very slow, but it is truth that that up undoes those strongholds and that turns us around, turns that ship. But what we, and how we do that is we take every thought captive. So we destroy arguments and every loft and opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So does it light up with scripture? Is this where I should be going to have this need met? Yes, no. And then we take it captive to Christ. So temptation then is not the offer, or temptation is the offer that sin makes to your desires to fill those places that are empty, but temptation is not the sin. We see because Christ was tempted, it, it wasn't sin because he never sinned, but, but, but it is our desires that respond to that temptation. And we have to be careful because if our minds aren't girded with the truth, then we can fall just like Eve did. And I want to talk about this just a second. Um, the, the, the way that I've had understood what happened to Eve is that she was beguiled. And as I, as I studied beguilement, I, I, it occurred to me that I do this all the time. Um, so I'm going to say this to you and see if you can identify. So beguilement literally means to deceive someone by false reasoning. Okay? It practically means to believe something to be true based on insufficient evidence or false information. So we take a partial, tr partial truth, convince ourselves that it's true through our intuitiveness, and then we draw false conclusions. My husband just last night we had a Bible study at our house, and, and, uh, and, and I, was, I was like, oh, well, I don't think they like me. And my husband rolled his eyes, and he goes, she always comes to that conclusion falsely. I don't know what it is. I feel like I'll, I'll just meet someone, and I'll be like, I don't think they like me. And my husband's like, you are constantly beguiled in that area. So, we, so we, we take a little bit of something, and we draw these conclusions, and then we act on it as if we're the experts, okay? And this happens all the time. And the more I thought about this, I think women particularly, it seems in my life, seem to fall by this. And I've even seen controversies spread like wildfire based on something that someone perceived to be true. And I, I hate to say it, but more times than not, it, it is the woman. And it's been me before, so I'm not, I'm not judging. But I, and I know the temptation as well. Um, but but it, it was Eve that was beguiled, and so there, is, there, is, there has to be something there, it seems. But it's even more important for us to, um, to gird our minds with that truth. Um, and this happens because our hearts, uh, we have that fallen reasoning. Even that has to be redeemed. So our, our desires must be redeemed. Our reasoning must also be redeemed. And that happens as we take those thoughts captive uh, to the word of God and obey Christ. Um, and so the, the last point here that I wanted to make um, about yielding ourselves is that God would not give us a command that he is not going to equip us to follow. While we have these desires, ultimately the Christian, because of the Spirit and because of his provision in Christ, 
we, we are going to sin because we are, we are so fallen and his mercy is, is more, but we don't have to. We don't have to. And a lot of times I think that we think it, it's inevitable or, we, or we're just going to keep falling for that thing. And I think that's a lie from Satan because victory is ours in Christ if we want it. It, it may take time. It may feel like a death in that area. But, but, but he died so that we could be free from sin, and he meant it. So I don't think we're ever going to get to a state of perfection on this earth. But I do think that we can generally walk in holiness, and we can walk with the Lord, and most of the time walk by the Spirit because it's, it's bigger and, and better, and, and, and it, it, it's worth more. It, it is possible. Um, and sometimes we experience, you know, those seasons or those days or those hours or those moments where we're walking by the Spirit and we're walking in victory because we're treasuring Christ. Those, those little sins that nip at us, they, they're, they're easier to, to turn from because, because it's worth us so much more. And then, and then sometimes we get, we get into our flesh, and, and there's no victory in our flesh. And we experience Romans 7, and it's, and it's really hard. And, and we start to do things in our own strength, and we have to go back and remind ourselves, oh, my word, Lord, I can't do this. He goes, thank God. I'm so glad that you came to that conclusion. You're right. You can't figure this out, Sarah. You need me. You need me. You can do it. My strength is strong enough. You can obey me in this area. You can, you can, you can. Interesting, I'm thinking of Solomon because when he was weak, he was so strong. I mean, think of his love for the Lord in his beginning years when he called on the Lord for wisdom. He called on the Lord for his strength. He adored and he loved the Lord. And then all of a sudden he became strong. And what happened? He fed his flesh and he became full of himself. And pride made it so that he didn't need the Lord. He, he didn't need him anymore. So the, the, the paradox and what's so wonderful is that when we are weak, it is then that we're strong. It's a wonderful place to actually need him. It's a wonderful place to actually be. So ultimately, a believer has to choose to sin. We have to choose it because the spirit of Christ who raised from the dead, who lives in us, does have the victory. So when, when the unbeliever chooses, ultimately they will choose folly because the victory is not for them. But as believers, we can choose to walk in wisdom and the choice is ours and we can yield because the spirit is 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 more powerful than our flesh. And we can say like Paul, praise be to God that you have done this. The victory, yes, I struggle, my flesh is still weak, but, but, but the victory is ours in Christ. And so I came up with a quick victory plan for us, all right? And, and we're going to see how this plays out where rubber meets the road in the next five minutes. And then I have another piece of paper for you that has been my victory plan in this area uh, since, since January 1st, and it's been really edifying, and so I wanted to share it with you. I think it will bless you as well. Um, so, victory plan. Number one step in victory over sin is to agree that you don't have to sin. You don't have to. Okay? Number one, you have to believe. You know what? The power of Christ is in me. He died for me. I have a new nature. I don't have to walk in the way of folly. Number one, step of victory. There are some people that will never be free because they don't think they can. Well, they can't. You're right. But Christ can. So, so Christ is able to. He lives in me. Lord, do I believe in you? Do I have a spirit? Yes. 
yes, I'm able to. I can walk in victory. I can say no to this thing. I can say no to it. I can yield. His, his power is more. So number one, agree you don't have to sin. Number two, recognize the temptation. I have places that are, I'm going to walk into sin every time because they're just dangerous spots to me. One is when I drink too much coffee and I'm sitting around someone where I want their approval. Last Thursday, I went to seminary orientation because I decided to enroll in seminary, and I, it was freezing in the room, and so they had coffee, and it was shocking to me that when I walk in, they have a little bit of food and then a whole row of coffee, no other things to drink, just coffee, and I went, oh my word, what am I getting myself into? But the, the room was cold, thank you. The room was cold, it was freezing, and so I kept drinking coffee to stay warm, and I'm like, uh, at least I don't have to talk to anyone, I can just sit at this table. But then four seminary professors came and sat at the table with me, and I'm like, oh my word, and if you get me around someone who knows the Bible, I'm going to ask 10,000 questions. So I, I can't even think straight because I'm high on coffee, and I'm cold, and no one else is talking, so I have to fill the void, and I immediately, I'm like, will you just tell me, was Solomon saved? And they all look at me, and they're like, is this girl for real? Uh, anyway, so... And I just kept going with question after question after question, and I was so embarrassed that that whole night I just beat myself up. I was, because I just I thought I was so <laughs> gonna almost cry thinking about it. Um, but but I want the approval of man, okay? It, and, and I and I have questions that are insatiable, and I really struggle holding my tongue, okay? And so and so I know my my areas of weaknesses. I have some other, and and so what? So when you, so when you have a temptation. Realize, say, what is it that Madame Folly is, is whispering to me? What, what is she saying that's appealing to me? Because it's appealing to something in your desire that is turning you toward her. It's making you go, well, what is that? So if you have a temptation that actually feels like a temptation, pray, Lord, what desire is this getting at that I'm not getting met in you? Do you see that? So it's kind of like you stop, you pause, like, Lord, like, what is it? What, because there's no need he, need he can't satisfy. He tells us that. So we, we implore him to to look at that and to dig into us and to and, and to meet that need and to expose it okay so number one agree you don't have to sin number two recognize the temptation number three is stop remind yourself first corinthians 10 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability which means you can say no but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you can endure it. So he's even going to give you a way out, okay? Remind yourself of that. Number, th uh, or I, I, sorry, I have two twos, but anyway. Don't gratify or make plans on the horizontal. So at that moment when you have that temptation, uh, Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Uh, so realize, you know, when that temptation comes, don't even entertain it. Like stop it right there in your thoughts. Um, that, that would be like making no provision. And something I want to say is that this could be easy, but it could feel like a, a death, okay? It could feel like the hardest thing you've ever done, especially if you've given way to that area of folly, and all of a sudden you're like, I have to stop this. Let me tell you that it may feel like detox, okay? It, it may be really hard and awful, and the scripture to apply there would be that, um, why is my mind going blank? Uh, that, that, oh, have you, have, you, have you resisted to the point of shedding blood? And I'll tell myself that, Sarah. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. You can say no to this. 
you know, you're looking at that piece of chocolate to satisfy this, this urge that you have right now. And, and, and by the power of the Spirit, yes, you can say no. And have you resisted the point of shedding blood? No, I have not. I can't say no to that chocolate. That is, that is how it happens, okay? It may be really hard to say no to that thing that you want to satisfy that, that perceived need, uh, but, but you can do it because of Christ. Um, so the next one is that God has already provided what we need by the Spirit when you became a believer. You just have to appropriate it, okay? 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So all things you need for life and godliness, he, he has provided. And those are given to you, at, what, as you become a serious Christian? No, at the moment of salvation, because they're all in Christ as soon as you're saved. So technically, you get saved, and all the power's right there that you will ever need. Isn't that amazing? And I've known people, and even myself, as soon as I got saved, I quit drinking, uh, I quit, I quit um, wanting to party, you know, everything, bam, just like that. Then I have some other things that <laughs> still linger, uh, but not those, not those. Those are really easy. The spirit is enough. Okay, so next one is ask yourself, do I believe that he can really do it? Because I think a lot of people you know, think, think they, they, they get stuck. And, and what this is, is that it's, it's a lack of trust in the character of God because he wants to help you overcome. He came so that you'd be free. He wants that so much for you, so he will meet you there, okay? Um, Philippians 4.14, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of Christ. See, our problem is that we, uh, we choose to fill those pleasures with, with things that we think can satisfy because we don't trust that he can or that he's good enough or that what he offers is better than those things. So we have to believe that what he offers is better, and that gets us to the next point, because the ultimate choice for the believer, for those in Christ, is do I treasure him more? Do I really value fellowship with him more than whatever it is I'm tempted to do in the terms of folly? Do I really treasure him more? Do I really treasure Christ's fellowship more than having to be right in this conversation with this person? Do I really treasure Christ's glory more even though I'm treated unfairly and I have to forgive this person who is so unjustly sinned against me? He says I have to forgive. Lord, I don't want to. Well, you know what? Do I treasure him more? Because if I want to walk in fellowship, i got to forgive. And let me tell you something. One of the hardest things I have ever done in my life is to forgive in a way that I have been so greatly offended. But people, when they walk in the Spirit, quick to forgive because they treasure him more. And again, 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 we could go on with analogies. So the last point is this. That Spirit is there, it is in you. You yield to it. Knowing your desires, you yield to it. So our desires, ultimately, they are either killed or they are fulfilled. That's what happens with our desires. We can either kill them or we can, we can fulfill our desires. Okay? Our evil desires. All right? But if we can stop, and, and I love this. Uh, this is Kay Arthur that, that taught this, um, and it's been so helpful to me in my walk, is that if I can have a thought that I recognize as a temptation or a sin, and the second I have the thought, I can recognize it and kill it, then it will never even come to be a desire. The problem is that when I have desires that somewhere I fed, maybe intentionally or non-intentionally, and, and then I have, to, I have to stop those. Those are a little tougher, but in the very beginning of sin, it's just a thought. So we can kill it there, and then we don't even have to deal with the temptation. Isn't that, that is so phenomenal. So in these ways, we increase in victory, and we go from glory to glory. 
we are transformed into his likeness as we partner with him in our sanctification and turn for folly and turn toward wisdom. Um, then every day in real life, what we do is that we appropriate our faith. A few weeks ago, uh, I was at church, and I was adamant that in 2020, my New Year's resolution was going to be I was going to stop complaining. I just decided it. And uh, I said it to one of our elders here. I was like, uh, they're like, how are you doing? I was like, I'm great. I'm not complaining at all this year. And they laughed at me, and they said, <laughs> good luck. You're, uh, you're, you, what are you going to replace that with? And I was like, what do you mean, replace it? Well, you can't just void yourself of that sin. You have to replace it with something. And so I went, oh, well, well, give me a verse. And they gave me Philippians 4.4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. There it is. So, what are, so, so we give the thanksgiving. So instead of grumbling, we give thanksgiving, and then God fills us with his peace. And what does it does? It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And then finally, brothers, here's another thing to fill ourselves. Whatsoever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So we fill our mind with Christ and good things instead of complaining. But this can be done with everything. We can replace worry with trust, anger with faith in God's justice. We can place unforgiveness. God doesn't just want you to just forgive and let it go. The way we forgive is that we put our trust in his justice, that he will take care of that offense. You, let me tell you something. It is a tough road to forgive, but it's really tough when you don't believe in his justice taking care of that offense. We can hang it. We can hang it that his justice is better, and, and, and then we move on. And then um, replace the need for intimacy uh, with Christ, and, and once again, we could go on and on. Um, and, and in my desire to treasure Christ, I, uh, I decided on Monday that if I can just remind my head of the knowledge of him and all the needs that he satisfies of mine, then, then maybe perhaps it's the best way to gird my heart from my fleshly desires uh, to keep him as my treasure. And so I have, I'm sharing with you my, my Monday secret. Every morning, Monday morning, uh, you can see on there it says um, there's a little sheet that I gave you. It, it's, the, it's the second one. And I read this every morning. It has been so edifying. It says, because he is risen right here. Um, and, and what I do is that, and I'm not going to read this right now because we're out of time, but if you will just set your mind on these truths, what they've done is that they've guarded my heart, that, that, that how practically he provides all of those things in me so that I'm not tempted toward folly on the horizontal, not that I always succeed, but the more I'm, I'm meditating on these truths, the, the stronger I, I have been. And then on Friday, this is kind of embarrassing. I, um, I, even when I wrote this, I was like, I'm never sharing this with anyone. But uh, uh, I, it's actually been so helpful. I changed my mind. Um, but on this last page right here, uh, it, it's kind of like a checkup. And then I ask myself, you know, did, how did I do this week? And then I may journal or, you know, write a few things down, you know, where I, I could have done better. And then I pray over those areas and I ask the Lord to expose you know, my desires that I'm, that I'm looking to have filled on the horizontal. So in closing, uh, last week, I, what I said is that I, you know, we, we, you know, folly is not our destiny, but, but there is a way where the rubber meets the road to, to gird ourselves, and, and that has been the objective of this day, and I, I hope that it has been helpful to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you are enough and that your mercy is more. Thank you for the Spirit and that wisdom for the New Testament believer is walking by the Spirit and not for the, by the flesh. 
God, I pray that we would increase in our knowledge and faith of your provision and, and, and your ability to make us strong and to yield to the Spirit so that we can walk in wisdom and with oneness with you and at the end of the day, choose you as our treasure. And God, we just thank you for all these things. Make us strong. Keep this word um, and what you have for us on our hearts that we may uh, go from glory to glory and bring you more glory at the end of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.